He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, everybody, welcome back. With me today, I have a topic that has long since been debated, admired, and questioned, that of hostage negotiation. We've seen enough documentaries about it. Some of us have actually considered going into a career of hostage negotiation. And with me today, what better guest than a hostage negotiator himself, Scott Tillema. Welcome to Honestly Unorthodox. What's up, Kayla? Thanks for having me today. I am delighted to have you, Scott. And I have somewhat of an arsenal of questions. And we just talked about 30 seconds ago that this will be a great freestyle way to get to know each other a little bit better on air, old fashioned radio style. I love it. Let's go. Let's do Let's it. Let's go. Let's do it. All right, Scott. First of all, I I think some background about you might help our audience figure out how does one get into hostage negotiation? I imagine this isn't something as a sixth grader, you tell yourself, I can't wait to be a hostage negotiator when I grow up. Yeah, it's, it's different. It's not like <laughs> showing up at Taco Bell and saying, hey, I want to work here in your drive through which of yeah. course I would love to do. That's a career goal of mine personally. Sure. But I studied behavioral science and psychology, and I think that if you want to get into a field like hostage negotiation or crisis negotiation, there's certainly a process that is going to get you there. It's not something that you wake up and decide, this is what I'm going to do today or with my life, that there's certain steps you need to take. And I think that, number one, having an interest in people is a great first step. If you are not a people person, this job isn't for you. And that's okay, but let's just start with the basics. And I think some of the um, really talented and knowledgeable people spend some time learning, maybe formally, about how people think, about our behavior, about our psychology, because ultimately, hostage and crisis negotiation is the ultimate influence game. We are trying to move people in the direction that they need to go, that we need them to go to truly reach a safe and peaceful conclusion to whatever incident we're working on. So getting uh, some knowledge of psychology is helpful. Working in law enforcement is almost always a must, at least in United States, uh, domestic crisis, hostage negotiation work is all being done by law enforcement. So some of those background pieces are, are pretty significant. And uh, I followed that path. And then uh, after working in law enforcement for about five years, I got some great training by some folks from the FBI, and uh, they taught me how to do this uh, life-saving work. And I've been involved in the field ever since. Did anything come as a surprise to you in the specialized training regarding negotiation? Yeah, I wanted to know all the cool things to say and like the magic phrases and all yeah. these things that are going to make it happen. But I remember that they started by teaching us how to listen. And mm. it was almost a bit offensive at first. I was like, look, I'm an adult. I'm a professional. I know how to listen. I've been doing it right. my whole life. But when they teach you these skills of how to be a really good listener, it's uh, a bit humbling because you realize mm -hmm. maybe I'm not as good at this as I think I am. And the one or two techniques that I have are not going to be sufficient in an hours long conversation. So learning the skills of active listening, 
uh, was really important and uh, and it's still a challenge. I mean, a lot of people talk about this and it's really a difference to know about it because I read it in a book versus being able to deliver this uh, at a high level under stress and under pressure. Yeah. And it, it, I feel like, and you obviously could tell me this because I am not a hostage negotiator. It's a lot more complex and layered than simply listening and providing some sort of empathic response. And do you think that's why people have a misconception about listening? Well, I think that not only do you need to listen for the words, but you have to listen for the emotion. And then from there, we need to figure out what it is they want. And a lot of times when we're dealing with people in crisis, and and that's much more frequent in the US than actual hostage taking, we're dealing with a person in crisis. We need to help them figure out what it is you want here. What is your outcome? Because um, a lot of these or a majority of these are just emotionally driven events. They're not thoughtfully planned out. They're they're not very organized most of the time. So we need to manage the emotion and help them figure out what do you want. And then it becomes really helpful to understand what are the drivers of behavior? What motivates people? What cognitive biases are existing in the world at the moment? So not only are we surface listening, we're, we're deeper listening, but we also are, are doing the psychological piece of trying to nudge them in the way that we need them to go and what's driving their behavior and what do they need right now. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stick to something you you said that's really important. The, the biases that are, uh, I guess, at the forefront of today's culture, there's a lot in today's <laughs> polarized world as of 2023. And you consult with businesses now, correct? Or do you, is it wider than that? No, correct. Yeah. My my company, the Negotiations Collective, we work with businesses doing uh, negotiation and conflict resolution, teaching and training. Do you find addressing biases within ourselves is a, not a primary component of that, but does it take up a large degree of what you do with businesses? I think people are really interested in this piece because I I talk a lot about managing ourselves first. And you learn this very quickly when you get into these situations because we get into a negotiation and we think I'm just going to come in and tell you what to do and I'm going to move you in the direction I want you to go. And it's going to be that easy. But these are really emotional conversations. These are difficult conversations. And the the fun part about this is people, most regular people are not going to be engaging in a crisis or hostage negotiation. But at its core, I'm just having a difficult conversation with somebody. And all of us are having difficult conversations or should be having difficult conversations. And we, we are reluctant to get into that sometimes because we know that it's going to be emotional. And then when we do, um, people have trouble managing themselves. So we spend a lot of time on this reaction piece on how do I react under pressure? How do I think? What are the shortcuts that I'm taking? And we'll do exercises with people to allow them to explore how they think. And sometimes it's uh, surprising and it's humbling, but people are always interested in that of why did I just make this mistake? 
And, uh, and one of my favorite exercises that we do is I'll flash a picture up on the screen for maybe a second or two. And what I'm trying to do is stimulate the system one thinking. If we're talking in behavioral economics, the very quick uh, thought process that we don't go through a lot of logic and reason, it's just a very instinctive reaction. Sure. And by only giving them that for one or two seconds, I'm triggering that system one response. And the picture is upside down, but nobody notices it. I ask them to describe whatever they saw on that last slide, and everybody's telling me all these very correct things, but they're missing the obvious piece that the picture's upside down. So then when we go back and we look at the picture right side up, everybody says, all my words are correct, my description is correct, and then I let them know that's not what they saw. And then we go back to what they see and let them study that, and they see, oh my gosh, this is obviously upside down, but I didn't realize this. And what I'm trying to teach them is this is how we live our life every day. We're on system one all the time where I look at you and be like, all right, this person is familiar to me. I know about you because I've dealt with someone like you in the past. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's just going to be visually. There's someone like you. So I'm going through my mind and my filters and trying to categorize what I think is happening before me with my past experiences and Oftentimes, this is not going to be exactly the same situation as they dealt with before. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to realize because I didn't take more time to explore this, because I wasn't more curious, because I didn't ask good questions, I came to a wrong outcome and I'm missing some really obvious things. Mm -hmm. And this is prejudice. This is bias. These are the things that are happening in our world all the time. And it's not because we're stupid or lazy. It's we're busy people. And system two thinking is very complicated. It's very draining. And we can't go through our lives analyzing every situation. But in these important conversations, are we aware that we think like this? Are we aware that we make decisions like this? And can we slow it down and switch to the system to much more thoughtful, much more deliberate process? So we're not making these biased mistakes that sometimes we make. I assume biases are easier than the system too, which is why we're we're all guilty of it. All human beings are biased in some way. I'll, I will probably make some sort of biased error today. I mean, that's just kind of human nature. And oftentimes it happens without our awareness. Do you find people you work with um, get defensive when their biases are brought up? Yeah, we, we talk about defensiveness and, and what happens here that are you aware that you feel the need to fight back or defend your position? And, and a lot of times we, we start listening less and we start talking more and the pace actually picks up a little bit. So if your goal is to get to a good outcome and in negotiation and conflict resolution, your goal should always be the outcome. And we need to switch that mindset a little bit because a lot of folks believe that the goal is about me. It's about my ego. It's about me being correct. And that's not the case at all in negotiation. Negotiation is not about me being right or changing your beliefs to believe what I believe. It's a reaching a goal or reaching the outcome that we're going for. So it helps a little bit when you say it's not about you really. And (laughs) And that's hard for people just to say, it's not about me. Is it uh, about you? How how do I come off of myself? And we feel a little bit less uh, of the need to be defensive and rather just be curious. You you say something that's um, maybe 
something I disagree with or, or something that could be um, opposite of what I think I know, why not just start asking good questions? Say, hey, you know what? That Thank you. Um, that's interesting. Tell me more. Uh, you know, share, share a little bit more about this. And then being curious allows for the dialogue. And I say, that's where we need to start. Your, your goal at the beginning, so many people want to get to this top stair of behavioral change. And how do I get this person to spin around? I said, how about our, our first most basic goal is to create a dialogue. Let's start talking and listening and creating a, a place where we can truly have a conversation where we are not creating the need for someone else to be defensive. I feel like the hardest part for people in those situations is hearing views that they find repugnant or <laughs> hearing views that they simply disagree with. And I almost wonder if it's a knee-jerk reaction uh, at a human foundational innate level to want to correct somebody else if we feel like their views are incorrect. But that is not the purpose of a negotiation or even a debate, really. Would you agree or disagree? I see you smiling over there. Well, well isn't, it, isn't it wild that in our universities today and in our law schools today, you have students who are studying going into a profession where professionally you are arguing back and forth with each other. Mm -hmm. And yet we are quick to cancel speakers yeah. on, on either side, right or left. It doesn't matter. People are right. angry and, and upset. We can't have the speaker because they have views different from my own. Sure. And now we are losing our ability to debate, to argue, to have critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And and this is, this is a serious problem, which is why I think that the skills of conflict resolution are so badly needed. Yeah. And when you have industries that want to teach their newest employees the technical skills they need to succeed, but yet we're going back and teaching them the basics of communication, the basics right. of bonding and connection, the, the basics of, of real relationships – it's it's a bit disappointing to say, hey, we, we want to get going very quickly, and yet we are trying to make sure that they can just function as, as a bare-bones professional. Mm -hmm. Which makes you wonder, and this speaks to what you spoke about when, when we first started this podcast, was we all have an understanding, or an assumption, I'll say, that we know how to listen. We're adults. We know how to talk. We're adults. We conversate with people all the time. But simply passively listening and uh, I guess more informal conversations that we have likely with people who generally share our point of view. Critical thinking doesn't just happen through osmosis. <laughs> it doesn't just happen through hearing in the media slightly different points of view. And I just wonder if people are so fearful of getting in these conversations because of that defensiveness and because of whatever biases in themselves they might find. Yeah. And in fairness, our, our society is somewhat mean, you know, when Absolutely. I do open up to you <laughs> and I share with you, well, here's how I really feel about this. Mm -hmm. You, you know, that you're going to be attacked. Sure. If you put your feelings out on social media and you support whatever presidential candidate you want to support, yeah. you know, that half the people out there are just waiting to say something mean or hurtful or threaten you or call you a name. So I think that this is really just a protection mechanism because we know that we are in a, uh, a really tough societal discourse where it is negative and particularly on social media when we're not dealing with a person, we're just dealing with an idea or, or a line or some writing. Uh, it's, it's very different when you're in person. Uh, 
you're, if nothing else, just a fear that somebody might just punch you in the face. You're, you're a little <laughs> bit more courageous when you're on your keyboard. Absolutely. Um, but why, why are we unwilling to listen? And, and one of the exercises I want people to do all the time is interact with somebody and share nothing about yourself. Share nothing about your position. Tell nothing about how your day was. And sometimes we're just trying to connect and say, yes, I've had this experience as well. I've gone through this too. But really make it about them and ask questions and continue to draw out that information. Because I tell people, yes, it's good to have techniques at the table. When you are negotiating, when you are trying to get your way, techniques at the table are powerful. But your real power in negotiation comes from information and options. So I can be at the table and say all kinds of nice things in a really nice way, and you'll be very impressed. But ultimately, that's not going to get you where you want to go. If I don't have information and knowledge about your situation or the situation, and I'm not developing options on how to resolve this, where, where am I going to go? Where is my power? And how are you going to get this information options if you're there talking all the time about yourself and your company, your position or whatever it is you're doing? Just be quiet and draw out information and listen and gather that. And then if, if we can go to the next step beyond just listening, are we getting into the nonverbals? I think this is really where we're gathering a lot of information because it's naive to say, I'm going to ask you a question and you're just going to give me the answer. Right. Asking questions <laughs> is really, really, really good mm -hmm. because I'm getting information all the time. Right. And maybe it's it's that little, that micro expression, a change of body position, gestures that weren't there before, or, or maybe a lack of some of these things. Really, really study these nonverbals because there is a lot of information there that we need to get. And people aren't paying attention to the nonverbals in their negotiation partner. And worse, they're not paying attention to their own nonverbals because we're so busy. If we truly get into this and I want to ask you good questions and be a good listener, I'm really focused on that. But I'm, I become unaware of what I'm doing with my hands and my face and my body and whatever else. And I think that leaks information. So I, it's important that we have to pay attention to somebody else's body language, but also we are really mastering ourselves as well. Sure. I, I want to expand on something you mentioned, a bad question versus a good question. What's considered a bad question? How, how would we delineate the, <laughs> the factors of that? Well, I would say anything that creates a dialogue and gives you information is probably one of your better questions. And in the skills of active listening, they talk about open-ended questions. And I think of the eight skills of active listening, open-ended questions is probably the most powerful one that you can have. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of good ones, but that's right at the top for me. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't or can't ask close-ended questions. Sometimes I need a yes or no. Sometimes I need factual information. But I have found that when we put people under stress and under pressure, they default to these yes or no informational questions. And um, one of the scenarios that I do, I train law enforcement officers on how to negotiate with people in crisis so we can avoid using force when it's possible. So I'll be holding a knife and I will make sure that they're tactically correct first. We're not going to put anybody in an unsafe situation, but once they are, I'll sit on the ground, I'm holding the knife at my side and we will watch them 
ask me questions. We, we will go through this process. And for the uh, administrator of this scenario, I'm, they'll actually watch me count on my hand the series of yes or no questions, these close-ended questions, and they'll mm. start laughing as I'm starting to get to 10 because the person on the other side doesn't realize what I'm doing. And I'm just counting this. Clo- yes. Is this your ad? Yes. Uh, you have a dog? Yes. This is your car? No. And there's no dialogue being created. So I think that the good or the better questions are the ones that create dialogue and get me talking rather than feel I'm being interrogated just by answering a a series of your questions. Would you consider that a a misconception of negotiation, that it's an interrogation and that it's high stakes and one person wins and or eventually forces the person into submission? Well, sometimes that happens and and maybe that's not a misconception because that occurs. And for me, I want you to choose the outcome because okay. ultimately if I hold power, if I'm the boss and I'm working with an employee, I can probably get them to say yes just by my position. Or if if we have more money than somebody else, we can force someone to say yes. But what happens next? What happens next? If I'm if I'm the employee, I'm in the lower position of power and you force me to say yes because you don't want to get into this conversation with me. You just come in and tell me what to do. Sure. I tell you yes and that just gets you maybe to go away. Um, but now I have to actually follow through with this agreement. Now I have to produce the service or the product or whatever it is we're doing and think of what level of service you are going to get from the person that you just forced into saying yes. And it's probably a really poor level of effort leading to a, a, a poor outcome. And you're getting some kind of garbage because this person's upset that you didn't thoughtfully engage them in the process or hear what they have to say. So sometimes negotiations it is this, where, where somebody comes in, hey, we're doing this, this, and this, and that's the end. Um, so in this particular case, I would warn that process is important, that we have to engage in this, even though you might be able to get to the outcome right away, even though you might have the right answer, is the person you're working with um, feeling heard? Are they part of this? And I think the real negotiators who, who are excellent at this are actually going to come in and get more than their opening position. I can come in and say, if you want to hire me as your keynote speaker, it's going to cost you $10,000. But a lot of people say, well, this is the most I'm hoping for, and they're going to talk me down, and I'm going to agree to less. Um, I think the great negotiators say, well, this is where we're beginning, and now we're going to explore, because maybe you can give me that and give me some introductions, or give me a testimonial, or give me some referrals or you've got a professional photographer at your event, or you've got a videographer at your event, and I can walk out of there with some pro pictures, some pro videos, some introductions, some testimonials, and now the value that I started at 10000 is really worth like 25000 to me because all these great things are happening. And uh, my company is now going to be a sponsor of your event, so I got my logo out front on the big sign, and I'm going to be sharing classes at a discount for your membership. So all these things are all part of the negotiation and nobody considers anything beyond just money. You know, I hope I'm going to get this and here we go. Uh, So I I think that we can build value in negotiations, which is why I really enjoy working with people who are good at this. Mm -hmm. People sometimes ask, hey, wouldn't you rather just work with someone who's a bad negotiator so you can steamroll them? I say, never. 
Yeah, that's um, the not bad the negotiators. I say, you know, this is my price. They say no. And that's the end of the conversation. And we <laughs> yeah. miss an opportunity to find great value here where yeah. we can both get what we want and then maybe a little bit more. So both people getting what they want. I have a, I have a little statement here that I'm sure you've heard before. <laughs> I, Chris Voss has become quite popular in mm-hmm. the past year or so. His book, Never Split the Difference, and this was my interpretation. I want you to tell me if I'm way off here. To me, the implication with Never Split the Difference was stating that a compromise means both people lose. But I'm hearing that, I guess you kind of contrasted that with what you said, where both people can walk away feeling like they got some value. So do you do you see Never Split the Difference as being an accurate portrayal? I, I wouldn't say that Voss or, or anybody else really believes that you shouldn't ever compromise. Right. I think the idea of this is to say, that's not negotiation where you come in. This is my price. That's your price. Let's just split it in the middle and be done. And I think the idea for so many people of negotiation is exactly that. And what I, I think he's trying to get at is there's more to this than just coming in and saying, let's just split the difference and be done. Because we do need to compromise all the time because one of the six big principles of influence as articulated by Robert Cialdini in his uh, seminal book, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, is reciprocity. So if I want to get something from you, I need to give a little something. And sometimes that could be as simple as answering a question. They don't teach you this in the, in the active listening skills. They teach you to ask all these questions. But then what happens next? This person feels the the right or the ability to ask you questions. You better be ready to start answering some questions because this is reciprocity. So if we're working back and forth and I'm asking you to give me a little bit more and asking you to give me a little bit more, and I'm not at any point moving off of my position or giving away some of the things that I've demanded or, or scooching a little bit your way, how, how do I ever expect you're just going to keep giving me whatever I'm asking for without me moving. So I I think the idea of don't compromise is a way to teach people there's more to negotiation than just coming in and reducing your position so you can get to an outcome. We have to be willing to get into these yucky conversations where they're emotional and our feelings might be hurt. And we're really struggling through that to get to an outcome that we're happy with. And, uh, and, and some of the great people in negotiations are really good at this and that's how they do their business. But to say, no, you can't ever compromise is a, uh, is a bit of a silly position. And, and I don't think that's what that book is, um, aiming at anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would have to agree with that. So in terms of people, I guess part of the muck of this is those messy conversations that need to be had if we're going to practice these skills in real time. I I wonder if part of the resistance to that is maybe an excessive focus on agreement being the outcome of every conversation. What are your thoughts on that? I think if we start by understanding you, your position, your situation, your company, that's a great start. And people get frustrated that they don't get the outcome right now. So let's get into this discovery phase. Let's get into the exploratory phase. And and we talk about this to begin your process. We don't start problem solving right now. 
we're not going for the agreement. This is exploration. This is discovery. I really want to learn what it is you want and, and, and what can I get knowledge wise from this conversation. So when we tell people do not problem solve here, this is the wrong place to start problem solving. This is the place to listen and explore. Then it's a little bit better. And, and it's not about reaching an outcome. Truly, this step in the process is about exploration and gathering information. And sometimes you might not be able to get to an agreement. Certainly, we don't live in a fantasy world to say, well, I'm a great negotiator, therefore I can always get agreements. Right. <laughs> if you can always get agreements, you're not a good negotiator. That means people are walking on you and you're not asking for enough. I really challenge people, don't be afraid of the word no. And I remember as a young negotiator, like when people said no, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is the end. This is the beginning. When somebody tells me no, perfect. Now we can get started. And if you're in business and people are always telling you yes, you're not asking for enough. You're not asking for a big enough price. You're not trying hard enough if everybody is telling you yes. And we have to accept that people are going to tell us no. That's why the idea of having options and information available to us to say, okay, maybe I can't get on Kayla's podcast. Now I, I need to explore elsewhere. And when it becomes, it moves from, I want to do this to, I need to do this. Now you're not negotiating. Now you've been taken hostage by the other side because they know you need to do this. And really you have no power anymore. You're just going to do whatever they say. Right. And that's a, that's a, uh, mentally, I'm sure challenging position to be in to feel like you've been taken hostage, not even like physically hostage. But I think because of financial reasons, a lot of people to keep this in the realm of the workplace do feel like to a degree they're held hostage, at least maybe emotionally to -hmm. the company that they, uh, that they said yes to. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Or, or even in conversations when somebody starts dominating and controlling the conversation, that's why we teach people how to react and how to respond properly and how to manage themselves Because as soon as you let somebody else take control of that conversation, you are conditioning them that pressure works. If I come in and I start doing this, you're going to start collapsing. So now the behavior I'm trying to avoid is exactly what I'm feeding into. So sometimes we have to manage our own reaction and and leadership within a conversation or within a dialogue. Am I managing myself? Am I leading this conversation? Because these are all pieces to help us get to where we want to go. Yeah. Let's talk about how difficult it might be to manage ourselves when we are negotiating for something like a salary. This continues to be something that is difficult for many. And what I have seen is that it's specifically quite difficult for women, I guess, relative to men for a variety of reasons. What differences, if there are any differences when working with men versus women, um, do you address in negotiating a salary? Yeah. And and I don't want to be overly broad to say all men or all women, Absolutely. What, sure. whatever, of course. Um, but there is a, the data is there. There's a salary gap out there. Sure. And, um, and one of the, one of the skills within um, negotiation is uh, assertiveness. Mm-hmm. And it's been shown that women can be less assertive than men in situations. And that might be a factor. It might not be the factor, but it could be a factor. Um, and there's plenty of men, too, who are not assertive, who are who are very soft and passive in negotiations. And 
we need to learn to be assertive in negotiations. And a lot of people tell me that they feel less confident or less willing to negotiate for themselves than somebody else. That is really easy for me to work to try to get something for you. But when it comes time for me, eh, I don't really feel as confident. So what I suggest to them is a little mindset shift that we, when we negotiate, it's not about you. You think that it's your salary, but it's not about you. When I negotiate, I negotiate for we. I don't negotiate for me. I negotiate for we. And now I'll ask you, when you use the word we, who are you talking about? And, and ask, ask, ask these people, who are you talking about when you use the word we? And sometimes it means your team. Sometimes it means your business. Sometimes it means your partner or your family. You're not just negotiating for yourself because think of how positively it would impact your partner or your family if you had 10% more salary this year, if you had an extra week of vacation this year, if you had the flexibility to work from home or remotely one day a week or, or two days a week. These are all things that we can negotiate for. It's not just about you. It's how it impacts the people that you serve. So when you come into the salary negotiation and you say, ah, I, I just want to be agreeable, so I'm going to say yes, you are choosing to hurt we. You are choosing to hurt your family, partner, team, whoever it might be. So now that you have the mindset, it's not just about me. I am negotiating for them because I'm providing more money, more time for myself, more flexibility. The mindset is a little bit easier to say, now, hold on. If you are able to only offer me this amount in salary, I am going to have these five demands right here. I want more time off. I want a company car. I want per diem. I want all these things and have your list of demands set up in advance to say, I, I want 6% over what you're offering me or what the last person got and, and stick to this. And if they come down, Hey, maybe I got three or 4%. If I'm not getting that full fee that I'm asking for, here's some other things that can bring me value. And this is the preparation piece that you're coming in thoughtful and prepared for this conversation on salary negotiations, but get some of that money and then get some of this other stuff. And I don't negotiate for me. I negotiate for we and get that burned into your mind and your mindset is going to be very, very different when you have that conversation. I really love that little that change because as you said it's it's really smart to to think that if if it's easier for you to negotiate for somebody else so I guess you're more comfortable advocating for another person and you feel somewhat detached from it maybe that's part of it I think turning it into we allows you to feel like there is some sort of team pressure to a degree and sometimes I think that helps people so I really love the way that you uh that you phrase that Little mindset shifts can go a long way, right? They can. It's actually a little bit unbelievable <laughs> how uh, a simple change of words can uh, can alter an entire situation. Mm -hmm. So, Scott, I want to I want to ask you: Are there ever times when, and this might sound like a silly question, so bear with me. Are there ever times when negotiating when negotiation isn't effective, beneficial, or even safe? Um, I, I think those are probably three different questions. I, I would say negotiation should always be an option. 
Okay. Um, and, and it, and it should always be beneficial unless you're the person who comes to the table and says, Hey, here's what we need, but here's really what we're able to accept. And here's the, the least we could do. And, and you start giving away information. Um, then I really can't have you as part of my <laughs> negotiation team because you're not sure. helping us. Sure. Um, so it should be beneficial because the, the skilled negotiators are gathering information that's going to be helpful. Um, but also it's okay to say we have no deal. Um, I have worked with people who have said, hey, we want to bring you on, for example, as a negotiation coach with our uh, business or our company. And we explore this, say, okay, well, here's what you're offering me. Here's the, um, here's the restraints. And, and once this agreement ends, maybe there's a non-compete for a period of time. And I can say, look, this is not good for me. Um, and I'm not sure that it's going to be good for you. And we can say that there isn't a good fit here. So sometimes no deal is a really good outcome to say this isn't where we need to be. Instead of lowering my standards and agreeing to less, which is what a lot of people do because they think this is my only option. If, if I've prepared, I know there might be other options like this out there. So because of this negotiation, we don't have a deal and, and we come out without this and that might be a really good outcome for you. Um, to, to your other question of are negotiations sometimes unsafe? Um, hopefully in the business world, it's not a physically unsafe thing right. to have a conversation, right. <laughs> but people feel, um, emotionally unsafe or maybe mm -hmm. uncomfortable might be the better word. So they avoid it. Um, in my line of work, yes, it can be unsafe. Um, certainly I've done, um, face-to-face -face negotiations with, you know, a guy who's holding knives to his throat, a guy who's holding a gun to his head, because you can very quickly hold a gun to your head and then point it at somebody else within a, a half a second, um, negotiate with a guy who's throwing chunks of concrete off of a rooftop. Uh, you know, there are dangerous situations. Um, but in, in these cases, I think that you say, let's structure it so I'm physically safe. And in these more normal, maybe for your audience, the, the business negotiation, structure it so you know that you are physically safe. So when you feel that fight or flight response, that instinct of, I need to react, you can let yourself know, let your brain know, I am safe. There is no threat to me that this fight or flight reaction that I'm experiencing right now, this little bit of anxiety that I have... It's, it's not needed. It is a, um, it, it's a natural response, an evolutionary response that I know I'm going to feel, but I don't need it right now because my body is safe. I am safe and comfortable. I'm going to go through maybe some tactical breathing to lower my heart rate and get me back into a comfortable negotiation position. But just to know, hey, this is a normal reaction. This is an expected reaction. And when we do coaching with people, we put them under pressure to say, you're going to experience this reaction. That was and how do we my next question. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not ever, it shouldn't ever be unsafe in, in a situation where you're actually unsafe. And if you are right. feeling unsafe, we really need to ask the question, is there a better way to do this? Or mm -hmm. do I need to continue with this negotiation partner if I'm, if I'm not in a comfortable or safe situation? Okay. So if we're in these situations where we're trying to coach people how to effectively and appropriately manage their physiological reactions to conflict, mm -hmm. which is important to learn how to do if, if any of these skills are going to be effective, I'm assuming. 
Is there any aspect of coaching where you, you, I mean, you just said that you put people in these situations. How might you put someone in a situation that triggers a, a typical response? Yeah. So one of the things I do, I work with a, uh, an executive uh, education, one of the top leadership programs in the world over in Europe at IMD Business School called High Performance Leadership. And I'm Very one of the cool. guest speakers at the advanced class, which is a, a tremendous honor Super and tremendous cool. opportunity. Yeah. But one of the sessions is where I'm teaching and we're learning the knowledge. And then the next session is going to be the skill building where they are having a one-on-one conversation with me where I'm role-playing and they have one of the top conflict resolution coaches in the world, George Cole Reiser, professor of leadership, psychologist. He is an amazing person, but we design it. So the rest of the class is sitting around them. They are within the circle. So they've got eyes watching them. And one of our fears in life is failure. We don't want to fail. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be judged or feel stupid. And I learned this in the FBI class. You are doing these exercises and everybody is watching you. And if that doesn't create an incredible level of pressure where you've got your peers, you want to perform, these are all really powerful, successful people, and they're all watching you, Mm -hmm. you are going to learn that in the real conversation when it's just you and I, and it's in the privacy of an office, this isn't so bad. Like, sure. yes, there's some pressure here, but all these eyes watching me, the, the concern of they're taking notes, they know what to say, they're nice and relaxed. So just having a little bit of an audience there to um, create pressure as you perform can mm-hmm. really add a level of stress that you don't yeah. want there, that down the road when they're not watching is going to be, man, what a relief this is. I, I made a mistake in this in this conversation or negotiation, but I recovered. You know, nobody's laughing at me or pointing fingers. It's okay. So sometimes having an audience is really important. And I, even having a coach there, having the audience of one, knowing that you are accountable, that you are going to be criticized, you are going to get feedback, really ups your game. That it's not just a head exercise of, well, I'm going to say this, this. You have to actually do it. So how many people are taking the time to get feedback, to get criticism and welcome this to say, listen, when we're having this conversation, what is my person effect? I know my intent is good. I'm trying hard, but how do you experience me in these critical moments? And sometimes there's just this one small adjustment that can be made that can go a long way. And sometimes it's just strategies of, I need to manage my triggers that how many people are getting triggered over something that's done or said that they're getting really upset. And, and maybe that's, we, we go into tactical breathing to manage the heart rate, or maybe it's, it's a more lengthy process to explore. Why is this a trigger for you? And if people experience triggers, that's not a bad or abnormal thing. A lot of times this is tied back to a um, a trauma that we have. And a lot of times that's a childhood trauma, or it could be an adult relational trauma, but let's explore why this word, why this person, why this concept is so threatening to me. And sometimes that that's going to mean time with a professional to say, every time somebody says this or does this, I really get upset. Let's explore this with a professional licensed therapist who can help me work through some of this. So In these moments when this happens, I'm not going to lose my mind because somebody said this word, this name, this political party, this belief, this hot topic that we're facing in society, and I've somehow lost my mind. Would you ever, I guess, begin 
pretty intensive coaching with someone who has not addressed their own triggers. So they're flying off the handle almost at any uh, mention of a word, a party, a this, a that. W- would it be useful to try to move forward with, with coaching with someone who hasn't seen a counselor or someone to work through that? Yeah, of, of course. And we first of all, I want to bring that to their attention because mm. most people in the professional realm are sophisticated enough that they're not going to blow up and start interrupting me. But I can see the posture changes. They, they're now leaning forward on the chair. Mm-hmm. They're, they're ready to interrupt. They're, they're eager to say what they need to say. And we see sure. this in conversations all the time when mm-hmm. somebody wants to say something. And, and almost then it becomes a, like, I'll stretch it out a little bit and make sure they don't have that opportunity quite yet um, <laughs> sure. to see if they're really going to jump in. Um, but here I'm going to ask the question, how does this reaction serve you when you come in and you're, con- you, this is the defensive moment where you where sometimes we start blaming. Sometimes we, we lose self-control. We all have different ways that this might, might show up. Uh, how is this helpful to you? when you have this reaction. And, and I remember having a negotiation with a guy. Um, he starts shooting when we're on the phone and wow. he's trying to get me to, to move uh, some people or, or leave or go away. Um, and, and my response is, you know, how is this helpful to you in achieving the outcome that we want? And I'm showing him what we talked about before. Pressure is not going to work. Generally, people expect I start firing a gun at you and threatening you. That's going to get the reaction that I'm looking for. It didn't, but I'm, I'm going to show, how is that helping you get to where you want to go? How is this reaction helpful to you? And allow them to go through the process of, well, what was said that triggered this reaction? What was my reaction and what I responded non-verbally, verbally? And what is the outcome that we're trying to achieve here? Because this is so instinctive that I'm doing this because it feels good. And what's happening is, is this is just a psychological leakage. I am so overwhelmed with this psychological pressure that I have to release this by Mm -hmm. saying it loud and fast and blah, 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 blah. Ah, what I'm doing is I'm releasing that psychological pressure, right? Mm -hmm. How did that pressure get there in the first place? Is there a way to relieve that? And is there a more effective way in allowing that to release? And maybe it's through breathing. Maybe it's through taking a break from the conversation for a couple minutes, or, or maybe it's postponing this till another time if you have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. But what is the outcome? Why are we here today? And once we put that front and center, and I'll have them write it out, write it out on a piece of paper, write it on the whiteboard behind me. Why are we here today to sign the contract, to sell the stuff, product or service, to get mm-hmm. to an agreement? This is why we're here. And once that's clear, what our purpose is, once that's clear, everything we do flows to support that outcome. And I'll, I'll challenge people that not only in these conversations in your life for your listeners right now in your life, what is your purpose? What is your mission? And if that's not abundantly clear, a lot of our behavior is not going to be making sense because we don't know what our purpose is. For me professionally, my mission, my purpose is to inspire people of all backgrounds to be powerful negotiators. Mm -hmm. Now, I have that clear. Inspire people of all backgrounds to be powerful negotiators. Everything I do has to flow to support that. And if it means that I'm going to get on social media and fly off the handle about politics or a a hot button topic, how is that supporting the outcome that I want? It's not. 
mm-hmm. feels good. Okay. Mm-hmm. I told somebody they're stupid and here's why I'm right and they're wrong. It's not supporting <laughs> my purpose. So what is your purpose is a really powerful question that people need to be asking themselves. And now that we're clear on that, whatever your purpose is, we can evaluate our behavior, evaluate mm-hmm. that reaction, evaluate these triggers and say, is this helping me to get to where I need to go here today? And this sounds like it would be wildly helpful for those students we mentioned that may have a really hard time hearing a different point of view or academia, a lot of universities now that struggle uh, with doing that, that this seems like it would be a vital skill or a vital skill set for these people to learn. Um, yeah. I just, I, I would wonder how different their lives would, would end up. And I also wonder if young people now, do you think that they're struggling to find a purpose? I know that this now we're getting a little bit outside of the scope of negotiation, but I'm just curious as to what you think being a dad, not, not only young people, but adults, I'll ask this in my seminars when I'm doing workshops, how many of you have a clear personal mission statement? And people kind of look around the room. They're, they're not quite sure. So mm-hmm. not to put it on, on young people, I'm going to put it on adults as well. Let's True. be really clear on this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people might not have this because no one's ever asked them. No mm-hmm. one's ever challenged them to say, why are you here? What is your purpose? And to your question, if my purpose is to live a life where I feel safe and comfortable Let's cancel every speaker that I don't like with, and I'm going to go sell ice cream so everybody loves me. (laughs) That is not my purpose. My purpose in going to law school and paying a quarter million dollars of uh, of my life that I'm going to have to pay this debt off for the rest of my life, my purpose is to be a critical thinker, to hear a lot of different views, to read a lot of different books, to be a strong... uh, debater, to be a strong arguer, to to really be confident in myself. And the way we do this is by getting uncomfortable Mm. and not in a threatening way. I I don't want anyone to expose themselves to discomfort in a way that it's really threatening them. That's going to do more, more harm than good. But are we uncomfortable? Are you willing to jump on a podcast and get questions fired at you for an hour and say, (laughs) you know what? I'm okay with this because in this whole process, I'm learning, I'm exploring myself, I'm thinking, I'm conversing. So what's your purpose? And once that's clear, we're willing to take some risks. We're we're willing to be uncomfortable because we know that's the process we have to go through to achieve the result we want. In conversations where, let's say we, we might have to converse with someone to a degree. We're in a we're at our employer's office and there, there really is no way around talking to this person. Although I would never suggest avoiding people anyway. Um, when there is a, a pretty big misalignment of motivation and a goal for a conversation, how might one go about that? Well maybe explore why why does the other why am I having this conversation first? Uh, and it's probably important, you know, why somebody else wants to have a conversation with you as well. Um, I think that a dangerous negotiation is one that you don't know that you're in. So, mm. you know, exploring people's motivations. Hey, why, why is this person talking to me? 
And I mean, we can do that all the time. We're on social media and here I am on Instagram and all of a sudden this most beautiful woman I've ever seen wearing a bikini shows up and sends me a private <laughs> message on Instagram. Sure. It's not because I'm somebody special. Maybe this is a bot. <laughs> Maybe it's it's somebody who's who's got nefarious motives because things like this don't just happen to normal people. Right. So understanding right. what people's motives are. And let's just explore that. Hey, I'm, I'm really curious in your motive in wanting to have a conversation with me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just bored and I need to pass eight hours of work because I hate my job. So I'm just going to keep talking to you. <laughs> sure. Maybe you're a strategic partner for me. Mm-hmm. And the first step in, in our program in negotiation that we teach is strategic networking. Mm-hmm. And you can be really good at all these pieces of negotiation that I talked about. But if we're not clear on the who, Hmm. on who we need to talk to, on who our best strategic partner is, whatever you have is irrelevant because you're not pitching it to the right people or the right person. So I don't think it's a bad idea to explore why are we having this conversation to begin with? What do I want out of it? What do I need from it? And if I'm just wasting my time, that's no good either. You have to be protective of your time. You have to make sure that you have time to focus on where you need to be. Um, But why is this person having a conversation with me? And let's be curious about that. And maybe your motives, hey, I just have nothing better to do with my life. I'm just going to go and talk to Scott for an hour. Listen, my hour is very valuable. I'm going to say, hey, thanks so much for your interest. Um, and and be polite, have, have a brief conversation. If you'd like to learn more about me, hey, watch this video, You know, follow me on here, share my ideas on, on LinkedIn, converse with me. What does this person want is a really good question to ask. And And sometimes when they're different, we have to be good at saying no. I think a lot of people are bad at saying no. Yeah. Um, be- because we want to be agreeable and just know that social norms are very different from business norms. So mm-hmm. socially, it might be rude for me to say, no, excuse me, I need to continue on. But in the business world, I can't respond to every cold email I get and every cold call I get with thoughtful interaction. We have to be willing to say <laughs> right. no or right. not right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. For the last few minutes here, Scott, I want to have some fun with this. Uh, We've already been having fun, but now we're going to maybe we're going to get into the maybe the muddiest waters there are children. Is it ever appropriate appropriate to negotiate with a child? You have to. Yeah. Tell me more. Always. I want my children to be great negotiators. I want them to be powerful in what they want to get in life. So Mm -hmm. I am teaching them this skill right from the beginning. So we talked about power differential. I mean, being a parent is the ultimate power differential. You can do it because you said so. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also teaching them the skills of this. And my my kids, uh, my 10-year-old just yesterday said to me, it, rule number one is if I don't ask for it, I don't get it. Mm. And sometimes they can be very persistent and very annoying. And you just say yes to make them go away, but right. they're winning. Because yeah. they're asking for it. And and I will teach them. You have to earn it, of course. We're not just going to give you stuff. But if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. And I negotiate with them, if nothing else, to teach them the skills of negotiation and make them ask, at, here's the question, answer this. What is it that I want? If I'm not saying yes to to what you are saying, could you offer me something that might make me say yes? So from time to time, they'll come to me and say, hey, daddy, if I take out the garbage or if I vacuum, could I do this? 
Mm-hmm. And now we have a contingency negotiation, which is amazing that most adults don't know how to do. We come in and say, hey, my offer is this. What do you think? Right. How about this? If I'm able to do this, this, and this, would you consider being able to do this, this, and this? And now I'm not offering you anything. It's, it's totally contingent. And we're not negotiating from positions. We're negotiating from an interest to learn, hey, this is what's interesting to me. So to answer your question, yes, let's negotiate with children. Let's teach them how to communicate. Let's teach them how to think. Let's teach them psychology. And sometimes uh, I'll give in because I'm a softy. Sometimes I, and I won't. And I'll be, <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. And and sometimes I'm not patient and, and yeah. I'm not setting a good example. And, and I know that. Um, we're busy. We get tired. I can have every excuse in the world. But yes, let's teach our children how to negotiate. It's a crucial skill to have, especially with growing up now so heavily and chronically online. I imagine it's uh, it's more essential than it ever has been, arguably. Yeah. Scott, do you have any final statements, questions, concerns? Where can we find you? How can we keep up with you? Yeah. So I I think maybe in in closing, I can say that negotiation is the most important skill um, that people can have for their success and their peace and their happiness. And not only for them, but for their families and their teams and the people that they serve. So just by using some of the techniques that we talked about here today, um, and not just knowing them, but by doing them, your life can be significantly better. So I would encourage everybody to take some time and thoughtfully progress in their journey toward negotiation excellence. And if I can ever be a resource to any of the listeners uh, that are tuned in today, um, you can find my company, uh, negotiationscollective.com. You can find me, scotttillema.com, or um, I'm active on LinkedIn. That's my my favorite social media platform. If anybody wants to connect on LinkedIn, send a personal message. Let me know that you heard this episode here. Be happy to connect and, and chat with you a little bit. Um, or if, uh, they want a little bit more insight on my process, how I do what I do, I invite everyone to listen to my Ted talk called the secrets of hostage negotiators, uh, which is on YouTube. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on great conversation. It was enjoy your day and your life of, um, effective negotiation and arguing. (laughs) 